1984, Cassette 2. Chapter 5 In the low-ceilinged canteen deep underground, the lunch queue jerked slowly forward. The room was already very full and deafeningly noisy. From the grill at the counter the steam of stew came pouring forth with a sour, metallic smell which did not quite overcome the fumes of victory gin. On the far side of the room there was a small bar, a mere hole in the wall where gin could be bought at ten cents the large nip. "'Just the man I was looking for,' said a voice at Winston's back. He turned round. It was his friend Syme, who worked in the research department. Perhaps friend was not exactly the right word. You did not have friends nowadays, you had comrades. But there were some comrades whose society was pleasanter than that of others. Syme was a philologist, a specialist in newspeak. Indeed, he was one of the enormous team of experts now engaged in compiling the eleventh edition of the Newspeak Dictionary. He was a tiny creature, smaller than Winston, with dark hair and large, protuberant eyes, at once mournful and derisive, which seemed to search your face closely while he was speaking to you. "'I wanted to ask whether you'd got any razor blades,' he said. "'Not one,' said Winston, with a sort of guilty haste. "'I've tried all over the place. They don't exist any longer.' Everyone kept asking you for razor blades. Actually, he had two unused ones which he was hoarding up. There had been a famine of them for months past. At any given moment there was some necessary article which the party shops were unable to supply. Sometimes it was buttons, sometimes it was darning wool, sometimes it was shoelaces. At present it was razor blades. You could only get hold of them, if at all, by scrounging more or less furtively on the free market. "'I've been using the same blade for six weeks,' he added untruthfully. The cue gave another jerk forward. As they halted, he turned and faced Syme again. Each of them took a greasy metal tray from a pile at the edge of the counter. "'Did you go and see the prisoners hanged yesterday?' said Syme. "'I was working,' said Winston indifferently. "'I shall see it on the flicks, I suppose.' "'A very inadequate substitute,' said Syme. His mocking eyes roved over Winston's face. "'I know you,' the eyes seemed to say. "'I see through you. I know very well why you didn't go to see those prisoners hanged.' In an intellectual way, Syme was venomously orthodox. He would talk with a disagreeable, gloating satisfaction of helicopter raids on enemy villages, the trial and confessions of thought criminals, the executions in the cellars of the Ministry of Love. Talking to him was largely a matter of getting him away from such subjects and entangling him, if possible, in the technicalities of Newspeak, on which he was authoritative and interesting. Winston turned his head a little aside to avoid the scrutiny of the large, dark eyes. "'It was a good hanging,' said Syme reminiscently. "'I think it spoils it when they tie their feet together. I like to see him kicking. And above all, at the end, the tongue sticking right out and blue, a quite bright blue. That's the detail that appeals to me.' "'Next, please,' yelled the white-aproned prole with the ladle. Winston and Syme pushed their trays beneath the grill. Onto each was dumped swiftly the regulation lunch, metal pannikin of pinkish-gray stew, a hunk of bread, a cube of cheese, a mug of milkless victory coffee, and one saccharin tablet. "'There's a table over there under that telescreen,' said Syme. "'Let's pick up a gin on the way.' The gin was served out to them in handleless china mugs. They threaded their way across the crowded room and unpacked their trays onto the metal top table, on one corner of which someone had left a pool of stew a filthy, liquid mess that had the appearance of vomit. 
Winston took up his mug of gin, paused for an instant to collect his nerve, and gulped the oily-tasting stuff down. When he had winked the tears out of his eyes, he suddenly discovered that he was hungry. He began swallowing spoonfuls of the stew, which, in among its general sloppiness, had cubes of spongy, pinkish stuff which was probably a preparation of meat. Neither of them spoke again until they had emptied their pannikins. From the table at Winston's left, a little behind his back, someone was talking rapidly and continuously, a harsh gabble almost like the quacking of a duck which pierced the general uproar of the room. "'How's the dictionary getting on?' said Winston, raising his voice to overcome the noise. "'Slowly,' said Syme. "'I'm on the adjectives. It's fascinating.' He had brightened up immediately at the mention of Newspeak. He pushed his pannikin aside, took up his hunk of bread in one delicate hand and his cheese in the other, and leaned across the table so as to be able to speak without shouting. "'The eleventh edition is the definitive edition,' he said. "'We're getting the language into its final shape, the shape it's going to have when nobody speaks anything else. When we've finished with it, people like you will have to learn it all over again.' You think, I dare say, that our chief job is inventing new words, but not a bit of it. We're destroying words, scores of them, hundreds of them, every day. We're cutting the language down to the bone. The eleventh edition won't contain a single word that will become obsolete before the year 2050. He bit hungrily into his bread and swallowed a couple of mouthfuls, then continued speaking with a sort of pedant's passion. His thin, dark face had become animated, his eyes had lost their mocking expression and grown almost dreamy. It's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. Of course, the great wastage is in the verbs and adjectives, but there are hundreds of nouns that can be got rid of as well. It isn't only the synonyms. There are also the antonyms. After all, what justification is there for a word which is simply the opposite of some other words? A word contains its opposite in itself. Take good, for instance. If you have a word like good, what need is there for a word like bad? Ungood will do just as well better, because it's an exact opposite, which the other is not. Or, again, if you want a stronger version of good, what sense is there in having a whole string of vague, useless words like excellent and splendid and all the rest of them? Plus good covers the meaning. Or double plus good, if you want something stronger still. Of course, we use those forms already, but in the final version of Newspeak there'll be nothing else. In the end, the whole notion of goodness and badness will be covered by only six words. In reality, only one word. Don't you see the beauty of that, Winston? It was B.B.'s idea originally, of course, he added as an afterthought. A sort of vapid eagerness flitted across Winston's face at the mention of Big Brother. Nevertheless, Syme immediately detected a certain lack of enthusiasm. You haven't a real appreciation of Newspeak, Winston, he said almost sadly. Even when you write it, you're still thinking in old speak. I've read some of those pieces that you write in the Times occasionally. They're good enough, but they're translations. In your heart, you'd prefer to stick to old speak, with all its vagueness and its useless shades of meaning. You don't grasp the beauty of the destruction of words. Do you know that new speak is the only language in the world whose vocabulary gets smaller every year? Winston did know that, of course. He smiled sympathetically, he hoped, not trusting himself to speak. Syme bit off another fragment of the dark-coloured bread, chewed it briefly, and went on. Don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. Every concept that will ever be needed will be expressed by exactly one word, with its meaning rigidly defined and all its subsidiary meanings rubbed out and forgotten. 
Already in the eleventh edition we're not far from that point. But the process will still be continuing long after you and I are dead. Every year fewer and fewer words, and the range of consciousness always a little smaller. Even now, of course, there's no reason or excuse for committing thought-crime. It's merely a question of self-discipline, reality control. But in the end there won't be any need even for that. The revolution will be complete when the language is perfect. Newspeak is Ingsoc, and Ingsoc is Newspeak," he added with a sort of mystical satisfaction. "'Has it ever occurred to you, Winston, that by the year 2050, at the very latest, not a single human being will be alive who could understand such a conversation as we are having now. Except, began Winston doubtfully, and then stopped. It had been on the tip of his tongue to say, except the proles, but he checked himself, not feeling fully certain that this remark was not in some way unorthodox. Syme, however, had divined what he was about to say. The proles are not human beings, he said carelessly. By 2050, earlier probably, all real knowledge of Oldspeak will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron. They'll exist only in Newspeak versions. Not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. Even the literature of the party will change. Even the slogans will change. How could you have a slogan like, Freedom is slavery, when the concept of freedom has been abolished? The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought, as we understand it now. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. One of these days, thought Winston with sudden deep conviction, Syme will be vaporized. He is too intelligent. He sees too clearly and speaks too plainly. The party does not like such people. One day he will disappear. It is written in his face. Winston had finished his bread and cheese. He turned a little sideways in his chair to drink his mug of coffee. At the table on his left the man with the strident voice was still talking remorselessly away. A young woman, who was perhaps his secretary and who was sitting with her back to Winston, was listening to him and seemed to be eagerly agreeing with everything that he said. From time to time Winston caught some such remark as, I think you're so right, I do so agree with you, uttered in a youthful and rather silly feminine voice. But the other voice never stopped for an instant, even when the girl was speaking. Winston knew the man by sight, though he knew no more about him than that he held some important post in the fiction department. He was a man of about thirty, with a muscular throat and a large, mobile mouth. His head was thrown back a little, and because of the angle at which he was sitting his spectacles caught the light and presented to Winston two blank discs instead of eyes. What was slightly horrible was that from the stream of sound that poured out of his mouth it was almost impossible to distinguish a single word. Just once Winston caught a phrase, complete and final elimination of Goldsteinism, jerked out very rapidly, and as it seemed all in one piece, like a line of type cast solid. For the rest it was just a noise, a quack-quack-quacking. And yet, though you could not actually hear what the man was saying, you could not be in any doubts about its general nature. He might be denouncing Goldstein and demanding sterner measures against thought criminals and saboteurs. He might be fulminating against the atrocities of the Eurasian army. He might be praising Big Brother or the heroes on the Malabar front. It made no difference. Whatever it was, you could be certain that every word of it was pure orthodoxy, pure Ingsoc. As he watched the eyeless face with the jaw moving rapidly up and down, Winston had a curious feeling that this was not a real human being but some kind of dummy. 
It was not the man's brain that was speaking, it was his larynx. The stuff that was coming out of him consisted of words, but it was not speech in the true sense. It was a noise uttered in unconsciousness, like the quacking of a duck. Syme had fallen silent for a moment, and with the handle of his spoon was tracing patterns in the puddle of stew. The voice from the other table quacked rapidly on, easily audible in spite of the surrounding din. "'There is a word in newspeak,' said Syme. "'I don't know whether you know it. Duck-speak. To quack like a duck. It is one of those interesting words that have two contradictory meanings. Applied to an opponent, it is abuse. Applied to someone you agree with, it is praise.' "'Unquestionably Syme will be vaporized. Winston thought again. He thought it with a kind of sadness although well knowing that Syme despised him and slightly disliked him, and was fully capable of denouncing him as a thought-criminal if he saw any reason for doing so. There was something subtly wrong with Syme. There was something that he lacked—discretion, aloofness, a sort of saving stupidity. You could not say that he was unorthodox. He believed in the principles of Ingsoc, he venerated Big Brother, he rejoiced over victories, he hated heretics, not merely with sincerity, but with a sort of restless zeal, an up-to-dateness of information which the ordinary party member did not approach. Yet a faint air of disreputability always clung to him. He said things that would have been better unsaid. He had read too many books. He frequented the Chestnut Tree Café, haunt of painters and musicians. There was no law, not even an unwritten law, against frequenting the Chestnut Tree Café, yet the place was somehow ill-omened. The old, discredited leaders of the party had been used to gather there before they were finally purged. Goldstein himself, it was said, had sometimes been seen there years and decades ago. Syme's fate was not difficult to foresee. And yet it was a fact that if Syme grasped, even for three seconds, the nature of his Winston's secret opinions, he would betray him instantly to the Thought Police. So would anybody else, for that matter, but Syme more than most. Zeal was not enough. Orthodoxy was unconsciousness. Syme looked up. Here comes Parsons, he said. Something in the tone of his voice seemed to add, that bloody fool. Parsons, Winston's fellow tenant at Victory Mansions, was in fact threading his way across the room, a tubby, middle-sized man with fair hair and a frog-like face. At thirty-five he was already putting on rolls of fat at neck and waistline, but his movements were brisk and boyish. His whole appearance was that of a little boy grown large, so much so that although he was wearing the regulation overalls it was almost impossible not to think of him as being dressed in the blue shorts, grey shirt, and red neckerchief of the spies. In visualizing him one always saw a picture of dimpled knees and sleeves rolled back from pudgy forearms. Parsons did, indeed, invariably revert to shorts when a community hike or any other physical activity gave him an excuse for doing so. He greeted them both with a cheery, Hello, hello, and sat down at the table, giving off an intense smell of sweat. Beads of moisture stood out all over his pink face. His powers of sweating were extraordinary. At the community centre you could always tell when he had been playing table tennis by the dampness of the bat handle. Syme had produced a strip of paper on which there was a long column of words and was studying it with an ink pencil between his fingers. "'Look at him working away in the lunch hour,' said Parsons, nudging Winston. "'Keenness, eh? What's that you've got there, old boy? Something a bit too brainy for me, I expect. Smith, old boy, I'll tell you why I'm chasing you. It's that sub you forgot to give me.' "'Which sub is that?' 
said Winston, automatically feeling for money. About a quarter of one's salary had to be earmarked for voluntary subscriptions, which were so numerous that it was difficult to keep track of them. For hate week, you know, the house-by-house house fund. I'm treasurer for our block. We're making an all-out effort. Going to put on a tremendous show. I tell you, it won't be my fault if old Victory Mansions doesn't have the biggest outfit of flags in the whole street. Two dollars, you promise me. Winston found and handed over two creased and filthy notes, which Parsons entered in a small notebook in the neat handwriting of the illiterate. "'By the way, old boy,' he said, "'I hear that little beggar of mine let fly at you with his catapult yesterday. I gave him a good dressing down for it. In fact, I told him I'd take the catapult away if he does it again.' "'I think he was a little upset at not going to the execution,' said Winston. "'Ah, oh, well, what I mean to say shows the right spirit, doesn't it? Mischievous little beggars they are, both of them, but talk about keenness. All they think about is the spies, and the war, of course. Do you know what that little girl of mine did last Saturday when her troop was on a hike out Berkhampstead Way? She got two other girls to go with her, slipped off from the hike, and spent the whole afternoon following a strange man. They kept on his tail for two hours right through the woods, and then when they got into Amersham handed him over to the patrols. What did they do that for? said Winston, somewhat taken aback. Parsons went on triumphantly. My kid made sure he was some kind of enemy agent. Might have been dropped by parachute, for instance. But here's the point, old boy. What do you think put her on to him in the first place? She spotted he was wearing a funny kind of shoes. Said she'd never seen anyone wearing shoes like that before. So the chances were he was a foreigner. Pretty smart for a nipper of seven, eh? What happened to the man? said Winston. Oh, that I couldn't say, of course. But I wouldn't be altogether surprised if... Parsons made the motion of aiming a rifle and clicked his tongue for the explosion. "'Good,' said Syme abstractedly, without looking up from his strip of paper. "'Of course, we can't afford to take chances,' agreed Winston dutifully. "'What I mean to say, there's a war on,' said Parsons. As though in confirmation of this, a trumpet call floated from the telescreen just above their heads. However, it was not the proclamation of a military victory this time, but merely an announcement from the Ministry of Plenty. "'Comrades!' cried an eager, youthful voice. "'Attention, comrades! We have glorious news for you. We have won the battle for production. Returns now completed of the output of all classes of consumption goods show that the standard of living has risen by no less than twenty percent over the past year. All over Oceania this morning there were irrepressible, spontaneous demonstrations when workers marched out of factories and offices and paraded through the streets with banners voicing their gratitude to Big Brother for the new happy life which his wise leadership has bestowed upon us. Here are some of the completed figures. Foodstuffs, the phrase, our new happy life, recurred several times. It had been a favorite of late with the Ministry of Plenty. Parsons, his attention caught by the trumpet call, sat listening with a sort of gaping solemnity, a sort of edified boredom. He could not follow the figures, but he was aware that they were in some way a cause for satisfaction. He had lugged out a huge and filthy pipe, which was already half full of charred tobacco. With the tobacco ration at a hundred grams a week, it was seldom possible to fill a pipe up to the top. Winston was smoking a victory cigarette, which he held carefully horizontal. The new ration did not start until tomorrow, and he had only four cigarettes left. For the moment he had shut his ears to the remoter noises and was listening to the stuff that streamed out of the telescreen. It appeared that there had even been demonstrations to thank Big Brother for raising the chocolate ration to twenty grams a week. And only yesterday, he reflected, it had been announced that the ration was to be reduced to twenty grams a week. Was it possible that they could swallow that after only twenty-four hours? 
Yes, they swallowed it. Parsons swallowed it easily, with the stupidity of an animal. The eyeless creature at the other table swallowed it fanatically, passionately, with a furious desire to track down, denounce and vaporize anyone who should suggest that last week the ration had been thirty grams. Syme, too, in some more complex way involving doublethink, Syme swallowed it. Was he then alone in the possession of a memory? The fabulous statistics continued to pour out of the telescreen. As compared with last year, there was more food, more clothes, more houses, more furniture, more cooking pots, more fuel, more ships, more helicopters, more books, more babies, more of everything except disease, crime, and insanity. Year by year and minute by minute, everybody and everything was whizzing rapidly upwards. As Syme had done earlier, Winston had taken up his spoon and was dabbling in the pale-coloured gravy that dribbled across the table, drawing a long streak of it out into a pattern. He meditated resentfully on the physical texture of life. Had it always been like this? Had food always tasted like this? He looked around the canteen. A low-ceilinged, crowded room, its walls grimy from the contact of innumerable bodies, battered metal tables and chairs placed so close together that you sat with elbows touching, bent spoons, dented trays, coarse white mugs, all surfaces greasy, grime in every crack, and a sourish composite smell of bad gin and bad coffee and metallic stew and dirty clothes. Always in your stomach and in your skin there was a sort of protest, a feeling that you had been cheated of something that you had a right to. It was true that he had no memories of anything greatly different. In any time that he could accurately remember, there had never been quite enough to eat. One never had socks or underclothes that were not full of holes. Furniture had always been battered and rickety, rooms underheated, tube trains crowded, houses falling to pieces, bread dark-colored, tea a rarity, coffee filthy-tasting, cigarettes insufficient, nothing cheap and plentiful except synthetic gin. And though, of course, it grew worse as one's body aged, was it not a sign that this was not the natural order of things if one's heart sickened at the discomfort and dirt and scarcity, the interminable winters, the stickiness of one's socks, the lifts that never worked, the cold water, the gritty soap, the cigarettes that came to pieces, the food with its strange evil tastes? Why should one feel it to be intolerable unless one had some kind of ancestral memory that things had once been different? He looked round the canteen again. Nearly everyone was ugly, and would still have been ugly even if dressed otherwise than in the uniform blue overalls. On the far side of the room, sitting at a table alone, a small, curiously beetle-like man was drinking a cup of coffee, his little eyes darting suspicious glances from side to side. How easy it was, thought Winston, if you did not look about you, to believe that the physical type set up by the party is an ideal. Tall, muscular youths and deep-bosomed maidens, blond-haired, vital, sunburnt, carefree, existed, and even predominated. Actually, so far as he could judge, the majority of people in Airstrip One were small, dark, and ill-favored. It was curious how that beetle-like type proliferated in the ministries. Little dumpy men, growing stout very early in life, with short legs, swift scuttling movements, and fat, inscrutable faces with very small eyes. It was the type that seemed to flourish best under the dominion of the party. The announcement from the Ministry of Plenty ended on another trumpet call and gave way to tinny music. 
Parsons, stirred to vague enthusiasm by the bombardment of figures, took his pipe out of his mouth. "'The Ministry of Plenty's certainly done a good job this year,' he said, with a knowing shake of his head. "'By the way, Smith, old boy, I suppose you haven't got any razor blades you can let me have?' "'Not one,' said Winston. "'I've been using the same blade for six weeks myself.' "'Ah, well, uh, just thought I'd ask you, old boy.' "'Sorry,' said Winston. The quacking voice from the next table, temporarily silenced during the Ministry's announcement, had started up again as loud as ever. For some reason Winston suddenly found himself thinking of Mrs. Parsons, with her wispy hair and the dust in the creases of her face. Within two years those children would be denouncing her to the Thought Police. Mrs. Parsons would be vaporized. Syme would be vaporized. Winston would be vaporized. O'Brien would be vaporized. Parsons, on the other hand, would never be vaporized. The eyeless creature with the quacking voice would never be vaporized. The little beetle-like men who scuttled so nimbly through the labyrinthine corridors of ministries, they too would never be vaporized. And the girl with dark hair, the girl from the fiction department, she would never be vaporized either. It seemed to him that he knew instinctively who would survive and who would perish. Though what it was that made for survival, it was not easy to say. At this moment he was dragged out of his reverie with a violent jerk. The girl at the next table had turned partly round and was looking at him. It was the girl with dark hair. She was looking at him in a sidelong way, but with curious intensity. The instant that she caught his eye she looked away again. The sweat started out on Winston's backbone. A horrible pang of terror went through him. It was gone almost at once, but it left a sort of nagging uneasiness behind. Why was she watching him? Why did she keep following him about? Unfortunately, he could not remember whether she had already been at the table when he arrived, or had come there afterwards. But yesterday, at any rate, during the two minutes' hate, she had sat immediately behind him when there was no apparent need to do so. Quite likely, her real object had been to listen to him and make sure whether he was shouting loudly enough. His earlier thought returned to him. Probably she was not actually a member of the Thought Police. But then it was precisely the amateur spy who was the greatest danger of all. He did not know how long she had been looking at him, but perhaps for as much as five minutes. And it was possible that his features had not been perfectly under control. It was terribly dangerous to let your thoughts wander when you were in any public place or within range of a telescreen. The smallest thing could give you away. A nervous tick an unconscious look of anxiety, a habit of muttering to yourself, anything that carried with it the suggestion of abnormality, of having something to hide. In any case, to wear an improper expression on your face, to look incredulous when a victory was announced, for example, was itself a punishable offence. There was even a word for it in you speak. Face crime, it was called. The girl had turned her back on him again. Perhaps, after all, she was not really following him about. Perhaps it was coincidence that she had sat so close to him two days running. His cigarette had gone out, and he laid it carefully on the edge of the table. He would finish smoking it after work if he could keep the tobacco in it. Quite likely the person at the next table was a spy of the Thought Police. But quite likely he would be in the cellars of the Ministry of Love within three days, but a cigarette end must not be wasted. Syme had folded up his strip of paper and stowed it away in his pocket. Parsons had begun talking again. "'Did I ever tell you, old boy,' he said, chuckling around the stem of his pipe, "'about the time when those two nippers of mine set fire to the old market woman's skirt because they saw her wrapping up sausages in a poster of B.B.?' 
sneaked up behind her and set fire to it with a box of matches. Burned her quite badly, I believe, little beggars, eh? But keen as mustard. That's first-rate training they give them in the spies nowadays, better than in my day, even. What do you think's the latest thing they've served them out with? Ear trumpets for listening through keyholes. My little girl brought one home the other night, tried it out on our sitting-room door, and reckoned she could hear twice as much as with her ear to the hole. Of course, it's only a toy, mind you. Still, gives them the right idea, huh? At this moment, the telescreen let out a piercing whistle. It was the signal to return to work. All three men sprang to their feet to join in the struggle round the lifts, and the remaining tobacco fell out of Winston's cigarette. Chapter 6 Winston was writing in his diary. It was three years ago. It was on a dark evening in a narrow side street near one of the big railway stations. She was standing near a doorway in the wall, under a street lamp that hardly gave any light. She had a young face, painted very thick. It was really the paint that appealed to me, the whiteness of it, like a mask and the bright red lips. Party women never paint their faces. There was nobody else in the street, and no telescreens. She said two dollars. I... For the moment it was too difficult to go on. He shut his eyes and pressed his fingers against them, trying to squeeze out the vision that kept recurring. He had an almost overwhelming temptation to shout a string of filthy words at the top of his voice, or to bang his head against the wall, to kick over the table and hurl the inkpot through the window, to do any violent or noisy or painful thing that might black out the memory that was still tormenting him. Your worst enemy, he reflected, was your own nervous system. At any moment the tension inside you was liable to translate itself into some visible symptom. He thought of a man whom he had passed in the street a few weeks back. A quite ordinary-looking man, a party member, aged thirty-five or forty, tallish and thin, carrying a briefcase. They were a few meters apart, when the left side of the man's face was suddenly contorted by a sort of a spasm. It happened again just as they were passing one another. It was only a twitch, a quiver, rapid as the clicking of a camera shutter, but obviously habitual. He remembered thinking at the time, that poor devil is done for. And what was frightening was that the action was quite possibly unconscious. The most deadly danger of all was talking in your sleep. There was no way of guarding against that so far as he could see. He drew in his breath and went on writing. I went with her through the doorway and across a backyard into a basement kitchen. There was a bed against the wall and a lamp on the table turned down very low. She, his teeth were set on edge. He would have liked to spit. Simultaneously with the woman in the basement kitchen, he thought of Catherine, his wife. Winston was married, had been married at any rate, probably still was married, for so far as he knew his wife was not dead. He seemed to breathe again the warm, stuffy odor of the basement kitchen, an odor compounded of bugs and dirty clothes and villainous cheap scent, but nevertheless alluring, because no woman of the party ever used scent, or could be imagined as doing so. Only the proles used scent. In his mind the smell of it was inextricably mixed up with fornication. When he had gone with that woman it had been his first lapse in two years or thereabouts. Consorting with prostitutes was forbidden, of course, but it was one of those rules that you could occasionally nerve yourself to break. It was dangerous, but it was not a life-and-death matter. To be caught with a prostitute might mean five years in a forced labor camp, not more, if you had committed no other offense. And it was easy enough, provided that you could avoid being caught in the act. The poorer quarters swarmed with women who were ready to sell themselves. 
Some could even be purchased for a bottle of gin, which the proles were not supposed to drink. Tacitly, the party was even inclined to encourage prostitution, as an outlet for instincts which could not be altogether suppressed. Mere debauchery did not matter very much, so long as it was furtive and joyless, and only involved the women of the submerged and despised class. The unforgivable crime was promiscuity between party members. But though this was one of the crimes that the accused and the great purges invariably confessed to, it was difficult to imagine any such thing actually happening. The aim of the party was not merely to prevent men and women from forming loyalties which it might not be able to control. Its real, undeclared purpose was to remove all pleasure from the sexual act. Not love so much as eroticism was the enemy, inside marriage as well as outside it. All marriages between party members had to be approved by a committee appointed for the purpose, and, though the principle was never clearly stated, permission was always refused if the couple concerned gave the impression of being physically attracted to one another. The only recognized purpose of marriage was to beget children for the service of the party. Sexual intercourse was to be looked on as a slightly disgusting minor operation, like having an enema. This again was never put into plain words but in an indirect way it was rubbed into every party member from childhood onwards. There were even organizations such as the Junior Anti-Sex League, which advocated complete celibacy for both sexes. All children were to be begotten by artificial insemination, artsem, it was called in Newspeak, and brought up in public institutions. This, Winston was aware, was not meant altogether seriously, but somehow it fitted in with the general ideology of the party. The party was trying to kill the sex instinct, or if it could not be killed, then to distort it and dirty it. He did not know why this was so, but it seemed natural that it should be so, and so far as the women were concerned, the party's efforts were largely successful. He thought again of Catherine. It must be nine, ten, nearly eleven years since they had parted. He was curious how seldom he thought of her. For days at a time he was capable of forgetting that he had ever been married. They had only been together for about fifteen months. The party did not permit divorce, but it rather encouraged separation in cases where there were no children. Catherine was a tall, fair-haired girl, very straight, with splendid movements. She had a bold, aquiline face, a face that one might have called noble until one discovered that there was as nearly as possible nothing behind it. Very early in their married life he had decided, though perhaps it was only that he knew her more intimately than he knew most people, that she had, without exception, the most stupid, vulgar, empty mind that he had ever encountered. She had not a thought in her head that was not a slogan, and there was no imbecility, absolutely none, that she was not capable of swallowing if the party handed it out to her. The human soundtrack, he nicknamed her in his own mind. Yet he could have endured living with her, if it had not been for just one thing, sex. As soon as he touched her, she seemed to wince and stiffen. To embrace her was like embracing a jointed wooden image. And what was strange was that even when she was clasping him against her, he had the feeling that she was simultaneously pushing him away with all her strength. The rigidity of her muscles managed to convey that impression. She would lie there with shut eyes, neither resisting nor cooperating, but submitting. It was extraordinarily embarrassing, and after a while horrible. But even then he could have borne living with her, if it had been agreed that they should remain celibate. But curiously enough it was Catherine who refused this. They must, she said, produce a child, if they could. So the performance continued to happen, once a week, quite regularly, whenever it was not impossible. 
She used even to remind him of it in the morning as something which had to be done that evening and which must not be forgotten. She had two names for it. One was Making a Baby, and the other was Our Duty to the Party. Yes, she had actually used that phrase. Quite soon he grew to have a feeling of positive dread when the appointed day came round. But luckily no child appeared, and in the end she agreed to give up trying, and soon afterwards they parted. Winston sighed inaudibly. He picked up his pen again and wrote, She threw herself down on the bed, and at once, without any kind of preliminary, in the most coarse, horrible way you can imagine, pulled up her skirt. I, he saw himself standing there in the dim lamplight with the smell of bugs and cheap scent in his nostrils, and in his heart a feeling of defeat and resentment which even at that moment was mixed up with the thought of Catherine's white body, frozen forever by the hypnotic power of the party. Why did it always have to be like this? Why could he not have a woman of his own instead of these filthy scuffles at intervals of years? But a real love affair was an almost unthinkable event. The women of the party were all alike. Chastity was as deeply ingrained in them as party loyalty. By careful early conditioning, by games and cold water, by the rubbish that was dinned into them at school and in the spies and the youth league, by lectures, parades, songs, slogans, and martial music, the natural feeling had been driven out of them. His reason told him that there must be exceptions, but his heart did not believe it. They were all impregnable as the party intended that they should be. And what he wanted, more even than to be loved, was to break down that wall of virtue, even if it were only once in his whole life. The sexual act, successfully performed, was rebellion. Desire was thought-crime. Even to have awakened Catherine, if he could have achieved it, would have been like a seduction, although she was his wife. But the rest of the story had got to be written down. He wrote, I turned up the lamp. When I saw her in the light, after the darkness the feeble light of the paraffin lamp had seemed very bright. For the first time he could see the woman properly. He had taken a step toward her and then halted, full of lust and terror. He was painfully conscious of the risk he had taken in coming here. It was perfectly possible that the patrols would catch him on the way out. For that matter, they might be waiting outside the door at this moment. If he went away without even doing what he had come here to do, it had got to be written down, it had got to be confessed. What he had suddenly seen in the lamplight was that the woman was old. The paint was plastered so thick on her face that it looked as though it might crack like a cardboard mask. There were streaks of white in her hair, but the truly dreadful detail was that her mouth had fallen a little open, revealing nothing except a cavernous blackness. She had no teeth at all. He wrote hurriedly in scrabbling handwriting, When I saw her in the light, she was quite an old woman, fifty years old at least, but I went ahead and did it just the same. He pressed his fingers against his eyelids again. He had written it down at last, but it made no difference. The therapy had not worked. The urge to shout filthy words at the top of his voice was as strong as ever. Chapter 7 If there is hope, wrote Winston, it lies in the proles. If there was hope, it must lie in the proles, because only there, in those swarming, disregarded masses, eighty-five percent of the population of Oceania, could the force to destroy the party ever be generated. The party could not be overthrown from within. Its enemies, if it had any enemies, had no way of coming together or even of identifying one another. 
Even if the legendary Brotherhood existed, as just possibly it might, it was inconceivable that its members could ever assemble in larger numbers than twos and threes. Rebellion meant a look in the eyes, an inflection of the voice, at the most an occasional whispered word. But the proles, if only they could somehow become conscious of their own strength, would have no need to conspire. They needed only to rise up and shake themselves like a horse shaking off flies. If they chose, they could blow the party to pieces tomorrow morning. Surely, sooner or later, it must occur to them to do it. And yet, he remembered how once he had been walking down a crowded street when a tremendous shout of hundreds of voices, women's voices, had burst from a side street a little way ahead. It was a great, formidable cry of anger and despair, a deep, loud, ooh, that went humming on like the reverberation of a bell. His heart had leapt. It started, he had thought, a riot. The proles are breaking loose at last. When he had reached the spot, it was to see a mob of two or three hundred women crowding around the stalls of a street market, with faces as tragic as though they had been the doomed passengers on a sinking ship. But at this moment the general despair broke down into a multitude of individual quarrels. It appeared that one of the stalls had been selling tin saucepans. They were wretched, flimsy things, but cooking pots of any kind were always difficult to get. Now the supply had unexpectedly given out. The successful women, bumped and jostled by the rest, were trying to make off with their saucepans, while dozens of others clamoured round the stall, accusing the stallkeeper of favouritism and of having more saucepans somewhere in reserve. There was a fresh outburst of yells. Two bloated women, one of them with her hair coming down, had got hold of the same saucepan and were trying to tear it out of one another's hands. For a moment they were both tugging, and then the handle came off. Winston watched them disgustedly. And yet, just for a moment, what almost frightening power had sounded in that cry from only a few hundred throats? Why was it that they could never shout like that about anything that mattered? Until they become conscious, they will never rebel. And until after they have rebelled, they cannot become conscious. That, he reflected, might almost have been a transcription from one of the party textbooks. The party claimed, of course, to have liberated the proles from bondage. Before the revolution they had been hideously oppressed by the capitalists. They had been starved and flogged. Women had been forced to work in the coal mines. Women still did work in the coal mines, as a matter of fact. Children had been sold into the factories at the age of six. But simultaneously, true to the principles of doublethink, the party taught that the proles were natural inferiors who must be kept in subjection, like animals, by the application of a few simple rules. In reality, very little was known about the proles. It was not necessary to know much. So long as they continued to work and breed, their other activities were without importance. Left to themselves like cattle turned loose upon the plains of Argentina, they had reverted to a style of life that appeared to be natural to them, a sort of ancestral pattern. They were born, they grew up in the gutters, they went to work at twelve, they passed through a brief blossoming period of beauty and sexual desire, they married at twenty, they were middle-aged at thirty, they died for the most part at sixty. Heavy physical work, the care of home and children, petty quarrels with neighbours, films, football, beer, and above all, gambling, filled up the horizon of their minds. To keep them in control was not difficult. This ends Side 1 of Cassette 2. Please turn the cassette over and start Side 2 from the same point.